I said as we were wrapping up Isaiah that it was my hope and intention to take Jeremiah at a slightly faster pace. We're three weeks in, we're at chapter two, and you didn't really believe me anyway. I, I, I still think it's true, and tonight won't be proof. I'm fighting muscle memory here. It's, it's difficult to shift. I've done it before. Um, years ago, I actually taught through Scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation in three years, which is like an eight-chapter-a-night pace. So I know I have that gear. Just need to find it again. Um, week one was, was, a, was a, uh, intentionally a go-slow-to-go-fast week. And we just spent week one of our study looking at the historical context of the book of Jeremiah. Last week, uh, we looked in chapter one at God's call on Jeremiah, God's call to ministry, to declare the truth to Judah, God's plan to tear Judah down and build Judah up in that order. Tonight, in chapter two, God lays out for Jeremiah and, I, and through Jeremiah both the reasons for the teardown, the reasons for the judgment that Judah will suffer at the hands of the Babylonians, the judgment that Isaiah warned was coming and that Jeremiah is going to declare repeatedly is on the near horizon. Most scholars agree that this message from God through Jeremiah comes from the early days of Jeremiah's ministry. Um, but it begins by talking about the early days of God's ministry to Israel in the earliest days of Israel, before the kingdom was divided, before the kingdom was even a kingdom, when Israel was a family wandering in the wilderness. Let's dive in. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, came to Jeremiah, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem. Speak to them. Preach to them, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness on a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. It's, it's the language of, of an older couple, right? looking at each other, asking one another, where did the love go? What happened to the romance? How did, how did it come to this? Remember when we were young. God is saying, remember our early years, saying to his, saying to his wife Israel, remember how it started? Remember how devoted you were to me? And remember how I promised to destroy anyone who came against you? I remember, God says, through Jeremiah. I remember what that was like. But along the way, verse 4, along the way, you forgot. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they've gone far from me, they followed idols and become idolaters. What did I do wrong? God asks rhetorically rhetorically because he's going to answer his own question. What did I do wrong? Verse 5, nothing. But I can't say the same for you, Israel. 
verse 6, Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelled? I brought you into a beautiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. What did I do wrong, God asks? Nothing. But I can't say the same for you, Israel. I kept my promise, God says in verse 6. I led you through the desert. I provided, I protected, I brought you safely into the promised land, verse 7. But when you arrived, still verse 7, when you got there, when I delivered you safely to there, you turned to false gods. You defiled the land that I set aside for you, and you defiled the people I set you aside to be. And the worst part, verse 8, is the leaders that I raised up, the people who were supposed to lead and, and model the way, the, those who were supposed to teach you, they led you in the wrong direction. The, the priests, the rulers, the prophets who should have kept you close to me, or at the very least, when you turned to the right or to the left, led you back to me, they helped lead you away. One commentator points out, we, we read the ideal relationship in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who not, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth fruits in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Really what God just said is, is that's what you were supposed to do, and that's how your leaders were supposed to lead you, but collectively together, you did exactly the opposite of that. Therefore, verse 9, Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. All of a sudden we're getting a Hosea vibe, aren't we? God has shifted roles. He's, he's pivoted to a different relationship. He's no longer speaking as the despondent husband. Now he's the prosecuting attorney bringing charges. Verse 9, he's issuing an indictment. Or possibly, here's another way to read it, think back to the days when it was necessary to present grounds for a divorce. We could also read God, the, the spurned husband, doing that. Here's my basis. Here are my grounds to seek a divorce. Verse 10. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see. Send a cater and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Go as far west as you can. Go as far east as you want. See if you can find anything like this. Has anything like this ever happened? Has any wife treated her husband in this way? Has any nation done this to its God? Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? 
But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. God's invoking a bit of irony here. He's saying the pagan nations, at least they stay true to their false gods. Their gods are false. They're worshiping something that's empty and hollow, but at least, at least they're consistent in worshiping that empty, hollow thing. You've traded out a relationship with the one true God with gods that are worse than useless. There's a play on words there at the end of verse 11. The phrase in Hebrew, does not profit, sounds like Baal in Hebrew. So God is indulging in a bit of wordplay here. Verse 12, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. God's calling the heavens to bear witness to his testimony. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Bad enough that the pagan nations worship idols, but they've always worshipped idols. My people have sinned doubly. They're doubly guilty. They've rejected me, the true and living God, and turned to false gods. So they're guilty of two crimes. Notice, by the way, the way God refers to himself there. Verse 13, the fountain of living water. How many times have we read John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus using that as a title of himself? And we've missed the connection. It makes you laugh when people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. When Jesus says, I'll give you fountains of living water, what was he doing? He was claiming to be the God who spoke through Jeremiah. But, but now, now walk that back, sit with that for a second. The Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, does what at the end of the chapter? She leaves her false worship, she leaves her sin, and she turns to God. The opposite of what we just read. Israel, who left God and turned to sin, turned to idols who can't hold water, who can't meet anyone's spiritual needs. How did that turn out for you, God asks, verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he plundered? God just shifted from past tense to present tense. Israel here is not the, the entire nation, the entire people of Israel. He's pivoted, and now he's speaking specifically of the northern kingdom. And he's asking through Jeremiah, he's asking the southern kingdom, hey, what happened to your families to the north? What happened to the ten tribes? Oh yeah, they're slaves. They're plundered. They're carried off. How did that happen again? Did they start out that way? The answer is obviously no. Verse 15, the young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. The Assyrians, obviously, is the, is the immediate reference, who invaded repeatedly and eventually conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., who also assaulted Judah, only to be turned back by God in 701 B.C. We talked a lot about that in Isaiah. 
So the young lions, the immediate reference is the Assyrians. There might be a double reference here. And I hadn't thought about this until, until a commentator pointed it out. But in 2 Kings 17, right after the description of uh, the invasion of the north, uh, where is it? Mark your verses, Patrick. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kula, Ava, Hamath, um, placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so, at the beginning of their dwelling, this is 2 Kings 17.25, there that they did not fear the Lord, therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, uh, and, 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 and further surrendered. So there's a double meaning there. Uh, the Assyrians themselves, God speaks metaphorically as lions, but God actually sent real lions. But he goes on, back to Jeremiah chapter 2, he goes on to say, also the people of Noph and Tabahes have broken the crown of your head. What's the reference there? Those are cities of Egypt. And they're cities at opposite ends of Egypt, so collectively, together, they refer to the entire nation. And the point there is that Egypt won't be your salvation either. Assyria wasn't. Assyria carried you off, plundered you. Egypt isn't going to help either. Some commentators seize on this and use it to quibble about when was this message given? When was this chapter of Jeremiah written again? Because Egypt kills Josiah. So is this in the past tense? Or is this in the prophetic past tense, God speaking of a future event as if it's already happened? It's hard to know, and it's not really the point. God's main point, verse 17, is have you not brought this on yourself and that you forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? God's main point is that they traded a loving God, a caring God, a powerful God for worthless idols, piles of wood and stone. That's why the Assyrians had their way with the northern kingdom. That's why the Egyptians will have their way and prevail for a time in the south. And it's also why neither will be able to stand against or save Judah from their eventual masters, the Babylonians. God is saying to Judah, when you ask yourself how you ended up slaves like your brothers to the north, that's the answer. Idolatry. Verse 18. And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? I think God is pivoting here from talking from, about physical assistance now to spiritual assistance. The nations, they aren't going to help you. Why would you think that they would? And the gods of those nations aren't going to help you either. Because where did Baal worship originate? And the Ashtoreths and Molech, with the Phoenicians who were conquered by the Assyrians. 
God is saying, I, I led you out of Egypt and I defended you from the Assyrians. When they, when they ravaged Judah, every, every fortified city, up to Jerusalem, but at Jerusalem I, I, turned you, I turned them back. I led you out of Egypt. I defended you from Assyria. Why would you look to their gods for help or comfort or support or strength or anything else? What is it you think that they have to offer? But as is so often the case, when God wants to punish us, when he wants to chasten us, when he wants to show us the error of our ways, he gives us what we think we want. Verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you. Your own backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it's an evil and bitter thing that you've forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. And from here, God sort of goes rapid fire reiterating his charges against Judah point by point. Verse 20, For of old I've broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said I will not transgress, while on every high hill and every green tree you lay down, playing the harlot. I delivered you from bondage, and you said we're going to follow you forever. Remember with Moses in Deuteronomy? But as, as quickly as you got to the land, you began to prostitute yourself to false gods. I planted you a noble vine, verse 21, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? It resonates with Isaiah, right? God says, I planted good grapes, fine grapes, and what came forth? Wild grapes. Verse 22, for though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. There's no hiding your sin. Verse 23, how can you say I'm not polluted? I've not gone after the Baals. How can you deny that you are what you are? That you do what you do? And we can imagine God is anticipating perhaps Judah's objection. We've got the temple. You know, depending upon when this was written. We've cleaned out the temple. We're worshiping again. We found the book of the law. We're reading it again. We're worshiping you. Look at all of our religion. And God is saying, yeah. But, but, but what else exists alongside of that? See your way in the valley. Know what you've done. You're a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? Like most worship of most false gods, worship of Baal, Moloch, the Ashtoreths, that involved immoral sexual behavior. God is calling out Judah for that behavior. And he's saying, do you think I don't see? Do you think I don't know? Do you think everyone doesn't know? You're like a, and God gets a little crass here. You're like a camel in heat. You're like a donkey wild with lust. And he's saying, you're human beings. You're people. You're supposed to be better than that. You, Judah, especially, should, you know better than that because I gave you the law. I taught you better than that. So you of all nations should be better than that. But no. Still verse 24. All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they will find her. You're raunchy. And people will, will find you and partner with you. 
and your desires. Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. You said there's no hope. No, I've loved aliens and after them I will go. Great poetic language here. What God is saying is if you run after pagan gods until your sandals fall off, you'll walk through the wilderness without shoes and without water. It's a, it's a powerful reference to the wilderness journey. Forty years during which their shoes didn't wear out and God provided water in the wilderness. If you run after pagan gods, though, instead of following the true and living God, if you run after pagan gods until your sandals fall off, you'll end up walking through the wilderness with no shoes and no water. How many people do you know who have done exactly that? Who have said there's no hope. No, I've loved aliens and after them, I'll go. I can't help it. I need it. I don't care if God punishes me. I need my idol. I need my false worship. I'd rather be in the wilderness without shoes and without water. One day they'll figure it out, God says. Verse 26, As the thief is ashamed when he's found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets, saying to a tree, You're my father, and to a stone, You gave birth to me. For they've turned their back to me, and not their face. But in their time of their trouble, they'll say, Arise, save us. They're worshiping sticks and stones. You're worshiping sticks and stones, God says to Judah. When disaster strikes, when, you're, when your back is up against it, right now your back is to me, but when your back is up against it, you're going you're gonna to turn and look at me and you're going to cry out to me, even while staying close to your sin. And the fact that we turn to God in times of extremists betrays the fact we know God exists. Why do atheists cry out to God? Because deep down, everyone knows that he's real. Deep down, everyone knows that there's a God who created us, who loves us, who's able to hear our cries. But God says, you've played the hypocrite for so long. When you cry out, verse 28, my answer is going to be, where are your gods that you've made for yourselves? Let them arise. If they can save you in the time of your trouble. When calamity strikes, after claiming to be my followers while worshiping idols, I'm going to say, hey, dance with the girl would bring you. Except that's girls, still verse 28. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. You have as many idols as you have cities. That's a lot. Calling them Judah, by the way, is also God zinging them. It's, it's also God poking. It's a not subtle way of invoking what happened to the northern kingdom. Reminding Judah, hey, what happened in the north? You remember what happened? And you remember why it happened? It's going to happen to you. You're doing the same thing. You're worshiping the same idols. You're going to be judged the same way. Because why shouldn't you be? 
Why would you reasonably expect to escape judgment? I condemned Israel for chasing after pagan gods. Why would I not condemn you? Verse 29, why will you plead with me? You've all transgressed against me, says the Lord. All, Judah and Israel. And I tried to warn you, says God. In vain have chastened your children. They received no correction. The sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Remember, Jesus says the same thing. You killed your prophets. The ones that God sent to correct you, to speak truth to you, to exhort you. You didn't want to hear it. So you silenced them permanently. At this point, God recycles a bit. He, he, he's, he's like a prosecutor. He's sort of summarizing his points, restating his, his key arguments. Oh, generation, verse 31, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come more, no more to you. Did I not protect you in the wilderness? So what reasonable basis did you have to leave? Answer, none. What you told yourself was that you were leaving me because you wanted to be free. You wanted to, to cast off the, all of these laws, all of these rules. Did you really think that leaving me was freedom? What you did is you left love, you left protection, you left safety, you left provision, and you enslaved yourselves to idols. The only real freedom was where you were, but you traded it for bondage. Verse 32 can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Jewish wives, married women, would typically wear a sash or a girdle that represented their marital status. So they couldn't forget they were married. They, 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 your clothes say you're married. In much the same way, God is saying, you can't forget that you're married to me. You can't forget our relationship. My, my present faithfulness in your life, the fact that I'm still loving you after everything, should be a daily reminder. The love that I'm pouring out for you daily, in spite of your wickedness, in spite of your idolatry, should tell you I'm still your husband who loves you. The only possible way for you to forget it is to cover your eyes and choose to ignore it to pretend that you don't see it. But guess what? That's exactly what you've done. Still verse 32, my people have forgotten me days without number, chosen to forget me. And what I don't understand, God continues, how, 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 can, you, how, how, how can you deny it? And, and why do you even try to rationalize it at this point? Verse 33, if you're going to sin, just, just sin. Be honest about it. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Why do you try to put lipstick on a pig? <laughs> Therefore, you've also taught the wicked women your ways. You're not the victims here, God reminds Judah. You've chosen wickedness, and you're teaching those who are victims. You're not innocent, but you're teaching those who are innocent how to be not innocent. You're teaching those who are innocent how to be spiritual prostitutes, and you're not even subtle about it. You're the opposite of subtle. Verse 34, also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I've not found it by secret search, but plainly on all of these things. Your sin is out there in the open. I'm not Sherlock Holmes, God says. I could be. 
I see everything, but I don't need to. I don't need to be omniscient because you're doing it right out in the open. And yet, verse 35, and yet you say, because I'm innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I'll plead my case against you because you say I've not sinned. God is slow to anger. God is merciful. And he's reminding Judah, if you would just repent, then we could have a relationship on that basis, on the basis of my mercy, on the basis of my grace, on the basis of my long-suffering. But the one thing you refuse to do is the one thing you need to do. You need to repent. And you won't. Because you're too busy denying that you're guilty. Verse 36, why do you gad about so much to change your way? It doesn't have to be like this. If you would just look for a divine solution to your life, to your problems, to your situation. If you would just look to me rather than human solutions or idolatrous solutions, false gods made by humans. If you'd stop looking for the right combination of sin and, and idols, sinful behavior and sinful beliefs to replace me and come back to me, we could get back to being us and have a relationship based on love and trust and dependence and provision. We could get back to how things started but you're so committed to doing your own thing, your own way. That isn't going to be how our story ends. And, I, and I'll tell you how it is going to end. You shall be ashamed. You shall be as ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you'll go forth from him with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies and you will not prosper by them. Assyria is not going to help Egypt's not going to help. Their gods are not going to help. Your sin cannot save you. You're going to end up with your hands on your heads, prisoners, beaten and ashamed. Just like so many people in the church today. Prisoners of sin, beaten and ashamed. This is ancient writing, but it's as, as relevant as it is ancient. Because, because it's, it's, it's the same God speaking about the same things. Israel, Israel and Judah, both Israel, was the wife of Yahweh. We are the bride of Christ. There's an analogous relationship and there's an analogous conversation. The conversation God is having with the kingdom of Judah and the things that he's trying to say are the things that he wants to say to the kingdom of God. Those in the kingdom of God who want to who profess God but worship idols. And he's saying to every one of us who turn away from him to worship the world or to worship ourselves or to worship our sin, he, he's saying, what did I do wrong? <laughs> what did I do to disqualify myself? What did I do to deserve rejection? And, and here, speaking through Jeremiah, he, God acknowledges, right, the world is hard. He invokes the wilderness. The wilderness was not a picnic. God acknowledges that the world is hard. He never says otherwise. He doesn't promise that the world would be easy. He promises to get us through it. 
it's also worth asking, why was the wilderness hard for the children of Israel? Was it because of God or because of them? Why were they there 40 years? Why did they need shoes that wouldn't wear out? Because of their sin. God is saying to Judah, he's saying to the church, hey, you work really hard at making it painful. I'm God who makes it possible. I'm God who makes sure that your shoes don't wear out and that you never lack water. You still have my word. You still have my spirit. If you would just remember our relationship, if you would just stop blaming me for your sin and idolatry, if you would come back to me and leave your sin behind, we could be us again. But that requires that we acknowledge what's happening. That requires that we say, yes, our sin does matter. And it requires that we stop looking for a third option. Sin? God, there's got to be something that lets me have both. Sin? God, there's got to be another possibility. Some other possibility that has the power to provide and the heart to protect? It's not out there. Wherever we turn... God just reminded us, verse 37, we will not prosper. The universe is still binary. God, not God, there is no third option. Verse 36, why do you gad about so much to change your way? Why not just remember, God is asking tonight, how much I love you? Why not decide God is calling tonight. Why not just decide to come home? Father, we thank you for strong words, convicting verses. And we try to push them away. We try to put them at arm's length. We try to say, man, Judah was a, was a mess. But it's people. Israel, Judah, they're people. People with a sin nature. People who rebel. People who go their own way. People like us. How amazing is it, Lord, that you've preserved your word these thousands of years. That it can be as, as relevant and meaningful and alive tonight as it was then. Lord, I pray by your spirit that we would do what Judah did not. That we would hear and that we would heed. Lead us, Lord. In your name.